What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So, what do we do with Medicare? How do we move forward toward Medicare for all? How do we how do we improve the system, as it were? On the line with us is our old buddy, the board chair of OurRevolution.com, Larry Cohen, past president of the Communication Workers of America, the board chair of the Democracy Initiative as well. Larry, welcome back. Tell us about this whole yeah. lowering the Medicare age thing. Yeah, great to hear you. Yeah, so led by the Progressive Caucus in the House, hundred and 65 roughly House Democrats have signed on to expanding Medicare. And three things. Number one, lowering the age to 60 from 65, covering the most vulnerable people who now often have terrible or no health care. Secondly, a really radical idea that Medicare Medicaid should be able to negotiate pharma prices the same way the Veterans Administration Health Agency does. That would cut pharma prices shockingly 40 percent on average. Wow. That's how much they're ripping us off. Yeah, it would take it to the price that people in every other country in the world pay, Canada and everywhere else. Forty percent more we pay. And farmer would tell us, well, that's so we can do research. So only Americans should pay for that, in other words. And thirdly, to expand benefits so that a really radical idea, older people covered by Medicare could have their teeth taken care of. Dental would be included, vision and even hearing. So those are the three things. It's a huge step towards Medicare for all. Our revolution and our allies are totally into this and, most importantly, fighting to get it in this budget bill. We, we are in a system now, as you've talked about so often, that it's only on the edges that you can do anything. And the real edges are this budget reconciliation process. This will be the second and last opportunity this year where the Senate can pass something but with 50 votes as a budget bill. And the House originates this legislation at the same time. We have almost the entire Democratic caucus in the Senate shockingly supporting Medicare expansion. Wyden, who chairs Senate Finance, authored it over there. And so there's a real shot at this. Amazing. Yeah, it really is. My understanding is that the $3.5 trillion budget, you know, so-called infrastructure budget reconciliation bill, has not been completely written yet. Is that the case? And that's why you guys are saying, hey, add this to it? No, this would be in it. This is in the plan that they have. Oh, it is. Great. Well, I mean, the plan is yet to be formalized in any way. It's not Mm -hmm. even. So step one of budget reconciliation is they sketch it out with no details. That's going to happen probably next week. This will be in it on both Senate and House side. But then, you know, on the House side, which is where we pay more attention, we can have more of an effect. That's where we've helped get the number of House Democrats up to about three quarters of the caucus, which is about 168, 169 have signed on to this. And Jayapal, who's also the author of Medicare for All, is leading this from Washington, from Seattle. So it should be in, first of all, the sketch, which is like, you know, a recipe for a cake without any ingredients Mm -hmm. or without specifying how much of anything. More like that. Yeah. I'll skip the cake. Yeah. And so that actually gets passed in a sketchy way. And then they split up this giant bill, which would also include continuing to fund the deficit, by the way. That's a key part. Otherwise, we're going to hit the debt ceiling. Um, 
So every, it's basically an omnibus kind of bill. It's way beyond infrastructure because it's the only bill that's going to pass. Now, in the Senate, to pass that bill, it has to meet the parliamentarian test or be overruled by the Senate vice president if the parliamentarian says no go on these items. This item will definitely go. There are things that are going to be put in there on immigration and other things, that uh, parts of the PRO Act, Protect the Right to Organize for Workers, that are more problematic. Obviously, I support all of them. But that is the wrinkle of the Senate. If the parliamentarian says, no, this is not really about the budget, principally, or about taxes, principally, or about the deficit, principally, it doesn't belong in here. And that's what happened to the $15 minimum wage in the COVID relief bill. Right. Parliamentarian said, no, it didn't belong, and nobody moved. Well, there was a move to overrule it, and it lost. Yeah. So tell us about our revolution. What, what are you all doing to promote this? How can we help? Sure. So this first round should go fine. But even in the first round would be to check with your member of the House, and there are no Republicans on it, I'm sorry to say. So if you live in a district with a Republican in the House, you can pound on them. Why wouldn't you support this? because it's incredibly popular, as you could imagine. Yeah. You, know, you go out on the street and talk to anybody in Portland, Oregon, or, you know, anywhere at all, Republicans, whatever, they're all going to support, you know, 90% support this. Medicare is incredibly popular. This is the 56th anniversary of Medicare. It's like today, yesterday, whatever. Mm-hmm. First expansion. So that's step one. Step two will be in the crunch to make sure that the people who are supporting it on the House side say to the Senate, if you strip this out, you're going to have to negotiate in a conference bill. We're not going to rubber stamp the Senate bill like we did on the COVID relief bill. That was an emergency. We gave up on $15 and other stuff. We're going to negotiate this one out in conference if our main items aren't in. And this is one of the five main items of the Progressive Caucus, which is about 94 members. Hopefully with Nina Turner Tuesday, we'll get to 95 yeah. members of the House. So that's sort of the recipe here. And what listeners can do is make sure that their member is not only on the letter, if they're a Democrat, they're not on the letter and they're a Democrat. Why not? So there's 50 Democrats, 48 not on the letter. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you have whatever the number is right now, you know, 210, 213 Republicans, all not on the, the, the letter doesn't matter, not supporting this, at least in any overt way. Right. So it's gonna... And then on the Senate side, there could be issues once again not right now, with Cinema Mansion, Cinema from Arizona, Mansion, West Virginia. I haven't heard that on this, though. Yeah. Well, there's other things we're trying to do, like eliminate fossil fuel subsidies, where I'm not sure we have all the Democrats. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it's probably a bigger lift, because the fossil fuel billionaires are starting to pass out money again. Larry Cohen, the board chair of OurRevolution.com, also Our Revolution on Twitter. Larry, thanks a lot for dropping by and and bringing us up to date. It's great talking with you, as always. Always great to hear you and great programming. Bye-bye. Thank you, Larry. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Thanks for listening to us on X-Ray FM. Yeah, sure thing, Tom. Thanks for another great program. You know, with this eviction moratorium expiring, we have a looming humanitarian disaster that's entirely preventable. From the American Rescue Plan, only $3 billion of the $46 billion federal dollars for rental assistance has have been allocated. So obviously, we need time to get that money out and avoid millions of people being thrown out on the street during a pandemic. Tell me I'm wrong, but it really does seem highly doubtful Congress is going to pass anything by midnight tomorrow, specifically the Senate. So, you know, I agree with former Housing Secretary Julian Castro, who says President Biden needs to extend this moratorium now, today or tomorrow, even if the Supreme Court strikes it down later, you know, at some future date. And Kavanaugh has said he would. You know, and everybody should check out your piece from last Friday about Kavanaugh. Kind of ironic there. Mm. Um, you know, he got his mortgage paid off by somebody. But anyway, you know, Cory Bush has a new bill, the Unhoused Bill of Rights, which would have the HHS declare homelessness a public health emergency. You know, as Bernie might say, Tom, in the richest country in the world, there's no reason any American should be without housing and health care. I love the urgency we're bringing to Medicare for all, like Larry Cohen was talking about. I think we need the same urgency for, for housing for all. I think actually that might be need to be more prioritized at this point than Medicare for all. What do you think? 
I think that they're both very, very important, Jeff. And I think the housing one is to use the fear of crime and, and that sort of thing that people have that sadly is so often associated with large homeless communities near neighborhoods. We're, we're seeing this battle right now in Portland, as you know. Yeah. We should not have homeless people in this country. We're the richest country on earth, and as you said, as Bernie would say. And uh, it's just nuts. I mean, you know, uh, uh, you've got country, I believe it was either Denmark or Finland, I did a show on it a couple of weeks ago, has just bas basically declared homelessness illegal. And what that means is that they, they will no longer allow any kind of law that the consequence of which is that people end up homeless. And, and they're going to, and, and they're, you know, providing housing to people who are homeless, period, regardless of circumstances, regardless of how they got that way, regardless of, you know, whatever. And uh, it, it just, it, housing should be a human right. It's like, you know, housing and food and shelter uh, or, and, uh, you know, clothing and education. I mean, these, these should just be, and healthcare should just be basic human rights. And they are in most yeah. other countries, other developed countries. Yeah. Yeah, and, and FDR included all those in his second Bill of Rights, yes. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so, I mean, these have been on the table for quite some time, you know, and the pandemic is exposing the the absurdity of and the, and the tragedy of having uh, this situation in America with all the money we have to let so many people be without. So yeah, I'm with thanks you. again, Tom. I appreciate Thank all you, you do. And it wasn't just FDR. Teddy Roosevelt proposed these things in his square deal. <laughs> so, Jeff, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Picking up your phone calls, Angelo in Cottage Grove, Oregon. Hey, Angelo, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I'm just uh, concerned about, you know, you go to the, the market and you uh, pick up a, a box of cereal and it says where it was made and and uh, what the ingredients are. But now the uh, federal government, a lot of people are standing up saying, well, you should just allow this stuff to go in your body called vaccines. But they don't tell you what's what's in it or where it's made or actually they do. Regulating it. You can ask. Any, yeah. Yeah. It's it's public I knowledge. Know. It's absolutely public knowledge, Angelo. And if that's one of the excuses to not get vaccinated that you're reading on Facebook, it's coming from somebody who's lying to you. The the information oh. the, I, it, there's there's all kinds of scientific papers about how the mRNA vaccines were developed, how the adenovirus vaccine that is the J&J &J was developed, the Pfizer and the Moderna or the mRNAs. They use different technologies, but the technology is not a secret. Not only is it not a secret, it's a it's been it's been 20 years since they first started developing mRNA uh, viruses or vaccines, excuse me. Um, those vaccines were developed originally to deal with SARS, um, you know, the original coronavirus uh, problem that we had all around the world. Um, they, they were using them in clinical trials against MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is also a coronavirus in Saudi Arabia and in these other countries a decade ago or more. This is not brand new stuff. The application, the, the tweaking of it for COVID-19 was new, but the ingredients, there's, there, there's no secret. Nothing's, nothing's where, being hidden from Where do you find it. that information? Well, first of all, I would start with, a, if you want the scientific, you know, if you want to find the scientific papers on it and the discussions of it, I would just plug it into a search engine, number one. Number two, I'm, I'm guessing that the FDA has it somewhere on their site. I'm not sure exactly where, but I can tell you for a fact, there is, there is no secret here of what is in these vaccines. It is very straightforward stuff. You don't have to worry. Angelo, thanks for the call. Kurt in Akron, Ohio. Hey, Kurt, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I had a thought the last couple of days with all these anti-vaxxers, and I'm trying to think why it is they think they do. And I think I might have come up with something, and I could be completely out in left field when I say this. I think they're confusing symbolism with substance. Explain. Well, in this context of, you know, my body, my choice, I have the right to do what I want. The symbolism would be they're always talking about the flag where they don't know necessarily the substance of what it means to be a patriotic oh. American. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I, fall, I fall at it or drop that into the category of tribalism. Uh, and, and I, you know, I think that there's something to be said for that. But what we really have to understand, Kurt, and I should probably write an op-ed about this, where this all started, this I don't trust the government stuff, 
This really all started in a big way in the 1950s and 60s yep. with you know, Joe McCarthy saying that the, the State Department was infiltrated by communists and you can't Although trust the darn Democrat, that Democrat Congress or that Democrat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Joe, Joe McCarthy was the one who said, don't ever say Democratic Party because it sounds too nice. It sounds sweet. Instead, say the Democrat Party and be with the emphasis on the rat. Um, and, you know, that's become the religion over on Fox News, so number one. But, but then it, it went from the crazy anti-communists like Joe McCarthy, who were just using it basically for political points and to get reelected. He was the senator from Wisconsin. It went from there to in the, in the early 70s or in the, in the mid to late 70s and the early 80s, really uh, with the election of Reagan in 1980, it, it became official, uh, you know, the doxology, the orthodoxy of the Republican Party. Um, the position of the right-wing billionaires that they don't want their companies regulated. They don't want uh, us telling them that their factories can't pour poisons out into the atmosphere, that they can't uh, spill poisons into our rivers, that they have to clean, they have to pay to clean up their damn Superfund sites. They, they object to all of that and that the government will legally support the right of, of working people to unionize. All of these things are an affront to them. All these things diminish their profits. All of these things, therefore, they say are government overreach. And what's coming out of that and this is why Reagan, in his inaugural address, and he government was, is not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. Exactly, and and all of that is to get the government off the back of the billionaires and the big corporations. And, and now here's here's what I want to say, though. A lot of people, and I think a lot of poor and middle class people, fell for it hook, line, and sinker, which you've said in the past. Trump used Bernie Sanders language to get those people to vote for him, and then he turned and stabbed him in the back when he became president. People have a tendency to confuse liberty and license, thinking yeah. that they are owed nothing but privileges in this country, and no one's telling them what their responsibilities, which is an awesome responsibility at that, what your responsibility is to be an American citizen. Because as we know, America's not easy. It is advanced citizenship, and yeah. it's going to put up a fight no matter what you do. But you also mentioned McCarthy. We need to remember that kind of webbed out into Bill Jenner of Indiana, the Congressman Richard Nixon in the 50s, and yep. look what it spawned from there. So, I mean... It, oh, that's where it all began this. in a big way. I mean, it, you, could, okay. you could argue that a lot of it started with the America First movement in the 1930s. Oh, in the 40s, yeah, with yeah. Lindbergh and all those guys. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, just, I just really think they don't... And this is, goes back to your whole argument that civics has not been taught in the public schools for the past 40 years approximately yeah yeah sadly since since we had uh, you know uh, bill bennett and, and ronald reagan kurt thank you thank you very much uh to our caller earlier who was asking what's in your vaccine uh, sean just apparently just googled it just uh, duck duck goat it whatever and uh it's over at the cdc it's real easy to search you're listening to tom hartman Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? 
Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016, one of my favorites. In her writings, which if, this is from page 62, by the way, the, a middle class primer or primer is the chapter title. In her writings, which have become foundational for libertarian theology, author Ayn Rand suggested that the only purpose of government should be to prevent oppression by force. What she neglected to consider was all the force inherent in nature. If you're hungry, there is the force of biology. If you're homeless, you confront the force of winds, storms, ice, and rain. If you're sick, you confront the ravages and force of disease. These were the forces that provoked the first governments, the first communities, the first clans and tribes, the first nation states. It's easy for libertarian elitists, such as multimillionaire TV talking heads or college kids reading Atlas Shrugged, to talk about how there should be no government beyond police, the army, and the courts. They all have enough resources that they don't need to deal with the forces of raw nature. And that explains why billionaires would bankroll libertarian-leaning think tanks that will, when the crash comes with its full force, tell us it was caused by big government. However, in the real world, humans must confront both nature and other humans, which is why we create governments and why we create economies. But it wasn't until 1776, when Thomas Jefferson placed John Locke's right to life, liberty, and property, or replaced it, with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that the idea of a large class of working people have the ability to pursue happiness, the middle class. It wasn't until 1776 that that was even seriously considered as a cornerstone obligation to government. This is also the first time in history that the word happiness had ever appeared in any nation's formative documents, as Jefferson wrote in 1817 to Dr. John Manners, quote, the evidence of this natural right, like that to our right of life, liberty, the use of our faculties, the pursuit of happiness is not left to the feeble and sophisticated investigations of reason, but is impressed on the sense of every man. As Jefferson realized, with no government interference by setting the rules of the game of business and fair taxation, there could be no broad middle class, maybe a sliver of small business and artisans, but the vast majority of us would be the working poor under the yoke of elites. The economic royalists know this, which gets to the root of why they set out to destroy government's involvement in the economy. After all, in a middle-class economy, they may have to give up some of their power and some of the higher end of their wealth may even be redistributed, horrors of horrors, for schools, parks, libraries, and other things that support a healthy middle-class society but are not needed by the rich, who live in a parallel but separate world from the rest of us. As Jefferson laid out in his 1816 letter to Samuel Kirchhoff, a totally free market where corporations reign supreme, just like the oppressive governments of old, could transform America, quote, until the bulk of the society is reduced to be mere automatons of misery, to have no sensibilities left but for sinning and suffering. Then begins indeed the bella omnium in omnia, which some philosophers observing to be so general in this world have mistaken it for the natural instead of the abusive state of man. Although this may come as a sudden realization to many, we've really known it all our lives. In fact, in the 6,000-year history of the civilized world, a middle class emerging in any nation has been such a rarity as to be largely historically invisible. The United States has had two great periods of what we today call a middle class. The first was from the 1700s to the mid-1800s, and it was fueled by virtually free land for settlers, stolen from the Indians, and free labor, slavery in the South and indentured immigrants in the North. The result was, as de Tocqueville pointed out, the most well-educated, politically active, middle-class, non-aristocrats in the world. The second period didn't take hold until after World War II, during my dad's lifetime. Unlike the first, which was fueled by free land and slaves, the second had to be carefully constructed with specific and what some might define as socialist policies put in place during the New Deal which asserted more democratic control over the economy and workplace in order to keep the economic royalists in check. To both stimulate and balance the domestic economy, FDR reinstituted progressive taxation, 
which gave workers more to spend and gave the rich an incentive to pay their workers better to maintain a stable workplace. Since if they took the money themselves, it would just mostly go to taxes, thus stimulating demand for more goods and services. Progressive taxation has a long history. As Jefferson said in a 1785 letter to James Madison, quote, another means of silently lessening the inequality of property is to exempt from taxation all below a certain point and to tax the higher portions of property in geometrical progression as they rise. FDR eventually hiked the top income tax rate paid by the super rich in America to 90%. This had a twofold effect. First, it held income inequality in check and ushered in an era of equal income and growth among all classes. Unlike the Gilded Age, when the economy grew at a blistering pace, but the gains were afforded only to the robber barons, the period between 1947 and 1980 saw unparalleled equitable growth. During these 30-plus years, the poorest fifth in America saw a 116% increase in their incomes. The middle fifth, 111% increase. Top 5% only saw an 85% increase. All income classes shared in the equitable growth. The crash of 2016. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us taking your calls in a National Progressive Town Hall meeting. He is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna, R-O Khanna. Congressman Khanna, welcome back to the program. What's at the top of your list today? Sure, Tom. Well, it's been a busy week today, as you can imagine, busy week on the Hill. There are two things critical. One, we're still here before August recess because we need to extend the uh, moratorium on eviction. The moratorium runs out today. If we don't extend it until the end of the year, you really will empower landlords to kick out people who can't afford rent. And the economy has by no means recovered. The second thing is we'd really need to make sure that the $3.5 $3.5 trillion reconciliation package survives and is passed. Uh, there have been comments, obviously disturbing comments by senators saying they don't support the $3.5 trillion. The Progressive Caucus has made it clear if you don't have the $3.5 trillion, if you start cutting that, the bipartisan bill will not pass. So they are inextricably linked, at least in the House. And if we don't have the robust $3.5 trillion with robust climate provisions, then we simply won't vote for the bipartisan bill. That's tough talk. I hope you guys can hold the line and don't end up with nothing. It's kind of a game of political chicken in a way, isn't it? You've got a couple of Democrats over on the Senate side who are funded by you know, big fossil fuel and, and big pharma and whatnot. Well, it is a game of chicken, but I, the way we view it is uh, we already compromised. I mean, as you know, we started out at $6 trillion. Senator Sanders did a fantastic job in getting to $3.5 trillion, but it was a compromise. There are a lot of things in there that we wanted. We wanted uh, expansion of Medicare to 60. We wanted uh, more funding for public college that's not in there. We compromised. Uh, it's actually less than the original Biden plan. But to now say that it is too high and to start cutting it and to cut climate change provisions, that's just not going to be able to pass a House where we have a three-person majority. And the reality is the Republicans in the House aren't going to vote for it. The Republicans are a far more Trumpified party in the House than they are in the Senate. So they need the uh, progressive caucus votes. I think it's better to be clear about that right now than than setting people up for disappointment if they're going to expect that we rubber stamp the infrastructure, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Yeah, very wise. So let's pick up phone calls. That would be great. Okay. Antonio in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, you are on the air with Congressman Connor. Okay. Thank you, Tom. And, and thank you, Congressman O'Connor, for taking my call. I wanted to ask Congressman O'Connor, so in 2015, the Barack Obama and his administration, when they entered the Paris Accord, they pledged to reduce the United States emissions by 25 to 30 percent of the 2010 level. At that time in 2015, it would, by 2025, at that time in 2015, it would have required according to both liberal and conservative estimates, between 4 to $7 trillion in spending to change the U.S. infrastructure in a way that would meet that target. Today, Bernie Sanders is offering $3.5 trillion 
I want you to be very clear. Can you answer first of that $1.5 trillion, what dollar amount will be actually aimed at climate? And then for the audience at home, we have to understand whatever the Democrats can offer in this radical Republican corporate Congress, uh, it's not even going to be a tenth of what was necessary 10 years ago. And we also have to realize $3.5 trillion is not $3.5 trillion spent over two years. That's over 10 years. Well, Antonio, most of your facts are, are correct that uh, $3.5 trillion over 10 years is not nearly enough of an investment in climate. My sense is that probably be about $500 billion to a trillion of that in climate, depending on how you count it, for the Civilian Climate Corps to support the clean energy standard, to support investment in renewable. But we've all said that we need far more. The Thrive Act, which I support, is $10 trillion over 10 years, and that's more akin to the kind of scale that we need. But we still need to support the $3.5 trillion, as that would be a major down payment, the biggest investment in climate that we've ever had as, as a country. My concern is that you have a lot of the Democratic caucus, or not a lot, I shouldn't say that, you have a few people in the Democratic caucus who aren't even on board with that, and uh, that's unacceptable to dilute that $3.5 trillion. Tony in Utica, Michigan, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Listen, I want to thank the congressman for his service in supporting our democracy in this time of bizarre unreality and fear. My question is this, what is the latest effort on the part of the Democratic Party to save our post office? Tony, we have made that a priority. The Oversight Committee uh, has had a number of hearings on it. As you know, currently there is a law uh, that would require that requires the post office to put money away for people's retirement 20, 30 years out. That is an unfair burden on them, and we are going to actually be increasing the funding for the post office and also making sure that we repeal that law so that they don't have this unfair mandate of husbanding resources in a way that they can't spend it right now. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. You're on the air with Representative Connor. Could we do something with the infrastructure bills in order to tie that funding to the states providing documentation that they have reached a standard of vaccination that would qualify as herd immunity? And so uh, that the, the state governors would have to provide this documentation, collect the data from their health care providers and those who provide vaccines when they reach the 75 percent uh, herd immunity level, they will be eligible for the infrastructure bill, the federal funding from both infrastructure bills. And the other thing that I would tie with that is allow the health insurance companies wide uh, latitude and and when they get 75 percent of their clientele to be vaccinated, then they get a, uh, a federal tax rebate and give them wide latitude as to any which way they can get that done. I support having uh, incentives and even in some cases requirements to get maximum vaccination. I don't think we ought to tie it to the infrastructure bill. One, you probably wouldn't even get 50 Democratic senators, who, who, some of whom represent states that wouldn't hit that threshold if you tied it to, to the infrastructure. But I think incentivizing companies and then also having mandates saying if you want to be in the in public places, if you want to frequent restaurants that are public, be part of public accommodations, that you have to be vaccinated, I think are all reasonable things that we need to be exploring because encouraging people hasn't worked. Yeah. <laughs> I, the $100 bill, you know, hey, here's 100 bucks. We'll see if that works. Joel in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. I have a question about an update on what's going on with mortgage refinance assistance for those of us impacted by COVID. And I have some four points I'd like to add after your update, if I may. Will they allow us to waive income in 2020? I'm being denied right now because my impact last year because I had lost tens of thousands being sick. Escrow fees are three times as much in Washington State as they are, say, in Arizona. Will that be unified as to one flat fee? Uh, no forced cash back out of your mortgage. They want that. They want to belabor you more. And uh, no negative credit reporting when you do this. Charles, they're all excellent points. The status of it is that it is still eligible based on the COVID relief plan that we passed, the American Rescue Plan. The points you raised, though, are ones worth looking into. I don't want to give you an answer without knowing the details. I would suggest you contact your member of Congress, but I will also have my staff look into it because I agree with you there shouldn't be an adverse score.
score on your credit and there shouldn't be hidden fees for you. So we will look into that. Joe in Cupertino, California, you are on the air with your congressman. Congressman, I noticed I was listening to Amy the other day that they're taking out a lot of the provisions with this bill, you know, school bus electrification. And that's just the whole purpose of the bill. But my question is, can you write into this bill with Bernie so that we can acquire this pharmaceutical plant and then start the Moderna contract there? Since we own the Moderna contract, we can distribute this to the globe as a force for good. Are you talking about that plant in West Virginia that they're shutting down after Joe Manchin's daughter sold off her shares? Exactly. And just do that as the War Powers Act and start producing this vaccine at a you know, breakneck pace so that we can get rid of all these variants and solve this once and for all. It's going to take three years at this point just to get the globe immunized. Mm-hmm. Joe, I agree with you that we have to, uh, after we solve our challenge here of getting people to, to be vaccinated, we need to uh, figure out on global manufacturing supply. Part of that, I think, is the, the TRIPS waiver so that we give an intellectual property waiver to other countries to have manufacturing, because I don't think you can have all the manufacturing happen here. And then the transport of those vaccines uh, becomes very difficult. You need to have some of the manufacturing within countries uh, that uh, uh, closer to the population. But I'm all for increasing our manufacturing as well. I think that's an investment worth making and it will create more jobs here in the United States. Congressman, we just have 41 seconds. Um, Do you see any movement in that direction? I mean, you know, Trump kind of bumbled around with tariffs and things of, of, you know, trying to bring manufacturing back to the United States. His efforts were completely ineffective, but there are ways to do that. Uh, Is there any kind of a growing consensus? Sherrod Brown has been all over this for years, as has Bernie. Well, Sherrod and and Bernie have been uh, terrific. And the point is, it's not just advanced manufacturing, it's critical manufacturing. It's making sure that uh, critical manufacturing uh, should be in the United States. I think that means uh, having uh, laws against dumping, having laws against uh, uh, having maybe even a, a carbon tax, which people are looking at if a, a country is producing uh, goods that have high carbon emissions. Uh, and it means uh, assisting manufacturers here in uh, the capital expenditure to, to uh, have those plants, a, a strong industrial policy. Yeah, I sure hope we can move in that direction. And welcome back, Congressman Ro Khanna, taking your calls for the hour. Jeremiah in Coalport, Pennsylvania, you are on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hey, Congressman. Right now we have Louis DeJoy um, heading the post office, and it's as if the Democrats couldn't do, can't do anything to get rid of him. But you know, if, I, if in a similar situation, I think Trump would have gotten rid of him post haste. So my. Um, Number one, do you agree with that assessment? And number two, why is it that Republicans seem more effective in getting their legislative agenda passed? Well, I do agree that Trump would have probably tried to to fire anyone uh, that he thought was disloyal or didn't serve his interests. But I'm not sure that we want to replicate that, uh, especially where Trump was violating basic laws and wasn't uh, adhering to uh, the proper procedures. I mean, we are a party that believes in the rule of law. And, and I think we ought to follow follow that while being uh, being tough. In terms of legislation, I agree with you that we have to deliver. We did deliver on the American Rescue Plan. Now the key is, do we get deliver on our infrastructure and reconciliation? The proof will be in the pudding. If we start seeing the dilution of this $3.5 trillion, uh, then I think it's a very fair criticism to say we're not delivering uh, when we have the majority. But my view is that the, the Sanders will uh, keep the coalition together and the president will realize that if you're not uh, near that $3.5 trillion ballpark uh, on that bill, you're not going to have the votes in the House and they're going to want to get something done. Norm in Tampa, Florida, you're on the air with Representative Kana. Yes, very quickly, Representative Kana, will you now pledge to America on Tom Hartman, I will vote no on the bipartisan if it comes to us before the Senate passes the reconciliation. I do pledge that, Tom. And not only have uh, I pledged that, that's been the position of the House Progressive Caucus, uh, where I am uh, uh, in leadership, and that has been the Speaker's position, that she's not going to bring it. Uh, I, I just don't. One thing the speaker is, is she's very, very, very astute about having the votes, and she knows the votes simply won't be there for her to, to try something like that. So you wouldn't. Uh, so it wouldn't even be worth trying to hold a vote on the on the one trillion dollar bill 
which is really only $500 billion in new spending, if the $3 trillion bill hasn't already been voted on? Correct. I mean, I would vote no, but it's not just me. This would, this would not be some courageous vote. There'd be 50, 60 members of the Progressive Caucus who would vote no on the infrastructure bill if there weren't a reconciliation bill that had already passed. Which gives you guys some serious leverage. We do. We have it. And, and it's for the right thing. It's what we're, what we're saying is this is not us pushing for Bernie Sanders or Warren's agenda. This is us saying, why aren't we doing Biden's agenda, which we've already Warren's compromised from? The Tom Hartman yep. program. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Diane in Corvallis, Oregon, you are on the air with Representative Connor. As a progressive, over the last several months, I've been receiving dire fundraising emails from organizations, most recently from Common Cause, saying that there's a threat of an Article 5 constitutional convention in the right-wing agenda, with just seven states standing in their way. And I'm wondering what you may know about this. Diane, I uh, am sure that there are those kind of efforts being planned by the, the right wing. I, I don't think they're likely to succeed. The most urgent, the more urgent threat is what is succeeding, which is their systematic uh, disenfranchisement of uh, uh, voters in uh, critical states around this country. And that's why I think the most urgent challenge for us is voting rights. Mike, in Bailey, Colorado, you are on the air with Representative Connor. Hello, sir. Uh, my question is, uh, what kind of guarantees are we going to have as far as the water infrastructure? For one thing, it's way underfunded. That'd be close to a trillion dollars to do it right. But uh, right now, uh, what's going to stop these privatized water uh, processing plants, uh, the owners, because that's part of that, we're going to hand uh, private business a bunch of our infrastructure. Uh, what's going to prevent them from selling that water to foreign countries? Uh, there's droughts, uh, water needs in Middle East. China's bought land here with the water rights, and I suspect that if need be, they'll go to the international courts to get that water. So what's going to guarantee these water uh, processing plants from selling it to foreign countries? Uh, once it's private, it's theirs is kind of the way our business structure works in this country. It's a great point, and it's why there are certain things that should be public goods, and uh, water infrastructure should be one of them. I am on the bill. I led the bill with Brenda Lawrence, that's the Water Act, that really talks about the uh, significant investment we need. Um, some of it is in the bipartisan bill, not nearly enough. A lot of it is in the Bernie Sanders reconciliation bill. Uh, and a lot of what's in the reconciliation bill is for public. And, and this is an important distinction between the bipartisan bill and reconciliation. Reconciliation really has a lot more money for the public investment on water infrastructure, on broadband infrastructure. A lot of the bipartisan bill the funding goes to the private in, in companies to, to build that infrastructure. So it's not just a matter of different 
difference in money. It's a difference of philosophy. And that's why the reconciliation bill is so important, especially for what you mentioned on water infrastructure supplying American needs. Ed, in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yeah, thanks for doing this, Congressman. My question relates to, I'm wondering if you or anybody in the Progressive Caucus knows anything about getting PSAs about COVID on the air. On a pretty regular basis, I see some pretty strong anti-smoking PSAs, but it's rare to see a COVID PSA, and the occasional one that I do see is pathetically weak. So I'm wondering, with everything that's going on, why aren't our airwaves and social media being flooded with PSAs my suggestion would be that they could have the, uh, you know, show what the average cost is for somebody who suffers from COVID and has to go to the hospital. So where are the PSAs on COVID? And it's a great point. And it, it's not something that I have paid attention to, but I will. I will uh, pass this on both to the Progressive Caucus, the House leadership and the White House. I mean, I agree with you. I don't understand why we're not taking advantage of every communication medium. And PSA certainly are one. And we need to be we need to be more saturated in uh, in getting these messages out. So it's a good suggestion. Pam in Santa Fe, New Mexico, you're on the air with Representative Kana. I have some confusion over growing frustrated with the time that we're spending with the bipartisan bill and sort of spending so much time negotiating with what seem like terrorists. But I heard that uh, Representative uh, Jayapal said on one of the weekend shows that there's a policy reason to hold out for that and try to really get both is better than just doing the reconciliation bill. So I wondered if you could clarify that. Well, Pam, I'm not uh, sure what you're referring to specifically, but one of the main reasons that we've had to do this uh, bipartisan bill uh, is that you wouldn't get a number of senators on board with the reconciliation bill if they if we didn't try the bipartisan way. So in a short, in a 50-50 Senate, where you need every senator, we had to do the, the bipartisan process. The president obviously also wants to try to show that Congress is working and that we, we can reach across the aisle. But uh, I don't know of any specific provision in the bipartisan bill that we wouldn't be able to do uh, at a greater scale or, or better in a uh, reconciliation package. The reality, though, is we had to do this to, to get the reconciliation package. Adam in New Orleans, you're on the air with uh, Congressman Conn. Hello, Congressman. Um, uh, acknowledging what the GOP is doing, what gives you legitimate hope that the Democrats can fight the move to fascism? Adam, well, the fact that we right now do have both chambers in the White House shows that uh, it is possible for uh, people to beat back the uh, forces of, of, of Donald Trump and the Trumpified party. Uh, the fact that Trump's candidates have lost in a couple of in, recently in Texas uh, shows he may not have the, the hold he, he once thought. Uh, the fact that there is some break in the Senate, particularly from Trump, uh, I think is encouraging. But I think it all comes down ultimately uh, to delivering uh, for people and communities left behind, recognizing that Trump's message in part gained traction because of fundamental discontent between by uh, a people uh, about globalization, about neoliberalism, uh, a view that we have to do more here in uh, producing things and creating jobs. Uh, and the more the Democrats can deliver on that, the more I think we break uh, some of the Trump coalition. Roger in Eugene, Oregon. You're on the air with Representative Conop. Good morning. I'm wondering if there's any way in the increase in Social Security that's being discussed that there could be a clause put in there to make the increase exempt from the provisions of the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offset. Some of us have been fighting against this since the 80s when it got instituted, and it's devastating to many retired public servants. Roger, I'm prepared for this question because I've gotten it enough now on the Tom Hartman show. The John Larson Social Security Act 2021 bill actually does this as long as the income is under 100000 So for working families, uh, it, it, it uh, does exactly what, what you're saying. Jonathan in Portland, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. 
Hi, Congressman Khanna. I wanted to know if uh, Congress was considering extending the pandemic unemployment insurance for self-employed people. Um, <clears throat> I, I uh, have been struggling. My business has been destroyed by the pandemic, and now with the Delta variant, it, things aren't going back to normal anytime soon. Um, I, my commercial landlord evicted me so he can uh, rent to someone else to make more money. Um, I'm just a piano teacher and I've been living on crumbs before. Uh, and uh, I'm also a jazz musician, which is considered to be uh, a, a part of Amer our American heritage. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just going to we're just dying here. Well, Jonathan, uh, thank you for sharing your story. And you're absolutely right. I mean, what you're doing is so important for uh, communities and country, music, jazz, piano. That's uh, part of the cultural fabric of a nation. Uh, I, I think we have to extend uh, help to small independent businesses like yours. And in terms of uh, extension of uh, unemployment, uh, I think we have to look at what uh, the Delta variant brings. But if there is an, a need and the economy isn't recovering, we have to be open to it. Nancy in Woodland, California, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Yeah, um, I'm concerned about redistricting reform. I guess it's part of the For the People Act. And I was reading on the Daily uh, Poster that it needs to happen by August 16th when the census re you know, releases its information, its data, and it uh, doesn't seem to be on track to happen. So what can you tell us about that? You're absolutely right. I mean, it's a, it needs to happen. It has, it's part of H.R. 1. If it doesn't happen, uh, we significantly diminish our chances of uh, holding the House majority, not just now, but we hurt ourselves for a decade. Because what you have is a situation in my state, in California, it, you have independent redistricting. But in states that are Republican, Texas, Florida, you're going to have partisan redistricting by Republicans to gain seats. The Supreme Court basically said, uh, Congress, if you do independent redistricting, we're open to it. I think that even the conservative court would find it constitutional. But we have to act and on voting rights and on independent redistricting. I, do, I don't sense the urgency. There has to be urgency. Might they, uh, if they can't get H.R. 1 through, uh, I, I know they're negotiating another, uh, another Voting Rights Act. Would that be part of that? It, it could, Tom, and, but all of these negotiations don't mean much if you're not willing to have an exception to the filibuster. I mean, yeah. and until you move that, I, I just think everything is academic. Zach in North Hollywood, California, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Uh, I have a quick suggestion, and then I have a question. The suggestion is take the filibuster, the OLC memo at the DOJ and the E College, light a match to them, and drop them in a metal waste paper basket. Okay, next. What do you think about the idea of changing the word tax to a more elegant term, patriotic contribution? And that way you could just simply say, have you made your patriotic contribution this year? That way when corporations want to plaster their names all over football stadiums, baseball parks, and golf tournaments, you know, you could just ask them that. You know, charities are nice, but have you made your PC t this year? And do you support voting rights? Do you advocate for voting rights? That would be the more pertinent question. Jack, I, I, I like your framing. I mean, I, I, obviously, I think it'd be hard to uh, to, to rename uh, tax uh, as in its entirety. But I think when we talk about taxes, talking about having we're all in this together, and this is a person's patriotic uh, responsibility, patriotic uh, duty, obligation. And if you're not uh, doing this, then you're not uh, contributing to to the country. And and we can ask people to answer the call to to do to. Uh, uh, their country. I, I think that's very good framing. Dennis in Crystal River, Florida, you are on the air with Representative Kana. I'm a Democrat. My neighbor is a Republican. We get along fine. But they always listen to Fox News and they continuously tell me stuff. The last thing they told me is that we're allowing people to come into the country and not testing them and just putting them all over the country or in different states. Is that true? You mean not No, it's not, Dennis. Uh, it's it's I mean, I let Tom weigh in, but it's no. Totally I was just—I I just wanted to clarify that he meant not by not test them, because the Fox News meme is they're spreading COVID around America. That's our problem. Uh, so back to you, sir. 
Uh, no, I mean, Tom, look, look, this is exactly what Fox News is doing. It's a total disinformation. You have to have uh, testing when you're coming uh, into the country. There is uh, there is no, they're detained if there is anyone who has a, a positive COVID test. And it's just uh, a total race baiting, total demagoguery, xenophobia, uh, with no, uh, no basis in fact. But unfortunately, these things take a life of, the, of their own. Yeah, that's true. Joe, in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Hi, Tom. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I have a question. I'm, uh, I've am i always thought that uh, campaign finance reform is probably our biggest problem. I at one time was told by Howard Dean's brother, actually, that about 32 states allow candidates, people who run for, for, for office, federal and state, to keep their campaign funds, and when they retire, they can take those funds as personal income as long as they pay taxes on them. Uh, I, that is not something that's widely known. I'm assuming it's true, and I wanted to uh, hear Congressman, the congressman's take on that. Well, it's outrageous if it's allowed. I don't uh, know uh, if they've reformed that. My understanding is it used to be the case in Congress that people people could do that with federal funds, and then they had reforms that don't allow that, although the rules are probably still too liberal. You can uh, basically use your campaign finance funds afterwards to support almost any candidate, any, any charity uh, that you want. I would have more restrictions uh, on that. Uh, maybe give you a choice of uh, helping support certain civic projects, but probably should need more restriction on that. Uh, certainly, there shouldn't be states that allow you to get that money personally. Yeah, I just had a link in a piece I wrote day before yesterday about how Paul Ryan uh, walked off with $7 million in his campaign funds, and he just rolled it over to a nonprofit um, that can then pay him a salary. So it's like, you know, it's a pretty slick trick. Zach, I, that may have been changed, you know, because that was your, a decade ago. But Zach in St. Louis, Missouri, you're on with Congressman Connor. Oh, hey, I appreciate uh, you both for taking my call. Um, I got two real short questions for Ro Connor. Number one is, did Nancy Pelosi bump her head or something? Like, why is she going opposite to Schumer on um, student loan debt? A relief or cancellation. And number two, last weekend there were a, a huge amount of Medicare for All marches in a number of cities across the U.S., and very little to none of the House Progressive Caucus took part in it. What's going on with Medicare for All? Are you guys even pushing for it anymore? Well, Zach, first of all, let me just say that the, the speaker has dedicated her life to public service. So I think we need to have respect uh, in in talking about her. Now, I respectfully disagree with her position on student loans. I think uh, K through 12 education and higher education is a public good, and we shouldn't have people burdened with that student debt. Uh, but the way to get her on board, I think, is, is not gratuitous insults, but is to actually build the case, and many progressives are uh, building the case. In terms of the Medicare for All uh, marches. I totally support that. I loved the activism. Uh, we have work to do to, to continue to build a coalition. We have over half the Democratic caucus on board. Uh, as we get more co-sponsors, we will push to get hearings and votes, at least in committees. Thoughts on where people should be focusing their efforts and activism this coming week? I think immediately today, Tom, we've got to get the moratorium extended. I mean, it's literally it's a matter of whether some pe people are going to, to be evicted. And then more broadly, this, this month, uh, while we're on recess, uh, we have to fight for what Sanders has put together. It is the most progressive uh, legislation in the last 40 years, but it's not going to be that if it gets cut and shaved. So we've got to really uh, get that to the House and, and get that voted uh, out in the House. Is there a chance that they're going to blow up the recess? Uh, McConnell certainly did that when he just wanted to crank through judges. I think they should. I mean, I, but let's get, get us back in here. Let's vote uh, for the $3.5 trillion. I mean, if the, the moderates have an urgency to get the bipartisan deal done, then we need to have that, need to have that urgency to get reconciliation done. Amen. Congressman, thanks so much for dropping by. It's always great having Thank you. Thank you. I always enjoy it. Appreciate Thank you. it. Yep. Uh, see you again soon. Congressman Ro Khanna, Khanna.house.gov and uh, Rep Ro Khanna on Twitter. Today we're reading from The Quantum Revelation by Paul Levy. This is from the introduction. For the last few years, all I've wanted to do is read about quantum physics. 
I've been studying quantum physics on and off for decades, but I've never gone as far down the rabbit hole as I have this time. It feels like I've gone through the looking glass to the point of no return. The more I contemplate what quantum physics is telling us, the more my mind gets blown into phantasmal traces of non-existent subatomic particles. Studying quantum theory is like ingesting a mind-altering, time-release psychedelic that keeps coming on with a greater intensity the more I wrap my mind around what this world-changing revolutionary theory is telling us about the nature of reality. Taking in what quantum physics is revealing to us about our universe is psycho-activating beyond belief in that it activates the psyche, inspires the imagination, and synchronistically dissolves the boundary between mind and matter. To say that quantum physics is the greatest scientific discovery of all time is no exaggeration. Its profound revelations and implications cannot be overstated. We literally have to create a new form of language, not to mention a new way to think, to do it justice. In discovering that quantum physics is indisputably encountered consciousness, there is simply no denying this fact. The highly respected mathematical physicist John von Neumann said as early as 1932 that consciousness exists in and has entered the equations of quantum mechanics, yet no one knows exactly where to find it. Quantum theory demands a radical revisioning of the role that consciousness plays in the deep structure and ongoing unfolding of reality. Quantum physics unequivocally points out that the study of the universe and the study of consciousness are inseparably linked and that ultimate progress in the one will be impossible without progress in the other. The change that began with the discovery of the quantum reality wasn't solely a transformation of the worldview of science, but is potentially an expression of and vehicle for the evolutionary mutation of human consciousness itself. To create context for its discovery, at the beginning of the 20th century, the prevailing opinion among many physicists was that there was nothing new to be discovered in physics except for more precise measurements. A unique development in human history, the discovery of the quantum nature of our universe has brought about a seismic tectonic shift in the very foundation of physics and the roots of our scientific worldview. The change in the concept of reality emerging in quantum theory is not simply a continuation of the past, but rather a radical break with it. The gap between the new version of reality, the quantum reality, reveals, and our old habitual ways of thinking about reality are wider than the abyss of the Grand Canyon, the two sides of which are at least on the same level. With the emergence of quantum physics, we are encountering an entirely new universe that is of a totally different order than the one we've been used to. The discoveries of quantum physics require a novel response in us, which, when are more fully understood and integrated, will irrevocably change us, both individually and as a species, in the very core of our being. Regarding the implications of quantum physics, John Bell, one of the most important physicists the latter half of the 20th century, is of the opinion that, quote, the new way of seeing things will involve an imaginative leap that will astonish us, end of quote. The book, The Quantum Revelation by Paul Levy. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 